you turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 6. I'm fighting something, hopefully at the end. So we'll see how long my voice lasts here. All right, he's 80-something years old, and he has suffered severely his whole life, his whole 80 years. He's seen things that he's never wanted to see. In fact, when he probably closes his eyes, he can't help but see them. He has tasted the acrid smell of smoke as a city burns. He has tasted uh, that smell on his lips. He has smelled the nauseating stench of death bloated bodies. He was torn from his people and he was torn from his homeland. So he was torn from the promise of people and the promise of place. He was taken and ripped from his city and from Jerusalem. So then he was torn from the promise of God's divine presence in those places. He spent the energy of his youth serving what became in future in Revelation, the symbol of seduction and severity up until the time of Christ, the city of Babylon, right? Now at 80, he sees something else. He sees one kingdom of man transfer to another kingdom of man. He watches Babylon be transferred to Persia. He's seen throughout these transfers of under the king of Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, now up at Darius. He's seen two, three different kings, and he's seen his faithfulness and some of the faithfulness of his friends extend through these very difficult time periods. But you can't help but wonder, wonder if he wondered as he looked around at his faithfulness through this severity that he didn't quote Psalm 73 at times to himself, which he knew by memory. He'd look around and he'd say, the proud prosper. The wicked have no distress until death. There's no trouble that the evil see except the trouble they dish out. That they dish out on those who seek to walk with God and those who are upright and who are poor, right? And now if it would be insult upon insult, he just learns that lying, power-hungry men had just put into law, an unfair law, that would forbid him from worshiping Yahweh for 30 days. What will he do? He's done this for 80 years. What will he do? Will he freeze with fear? Will he start feeling sorry for himself? Will he slip into a depression? Will he say, I've had enough boys, it's time to picket Darius's palace? Will he go on into a long political harangue about the dangers of mixing politics and religion? What will he do? Well, what he does is set for us in Daniel chapter 6. If you look at verse 10, here's what he did. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. He got down on his knees and three times a day he prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. I don't know about you, but when I read that, I, I certainly want to see, okay, well, what did he do? What did he do? All right, he trusted God, but I want to know more than what he did. I want to know how did he do it? How did Daniel trust God? How do you trust God in severity? 
when you walk into severe situations, when you encounter suffering, when you go through this valley or this valley of tears, how do you trust God? How do you continue to trust God through it? That's the question of this passage. That's the big idea of this text. Let's stand to find the answer. Please stand for the reading of God's word. If you open your Bibles to Daniel 6, you can go halfway between and turn right after Psalms, uh, verses 16 on. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and he slept, sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where, where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions of the mouths shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. And the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who were maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den... The lions overpowered them and broke all of their bones in pieces. Then the king Darius wrote to all the people's nations and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. And I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the powers of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are silent before you. For you alone are king. And you alone are to be feared. You alone are to be trusted and hoped in. Not just because you are full of majesty. But as David said, you are to be trembled before because you're full of mercy. So, Father, we ask for mercy now. That you would give it through your word by the power of your spirit. Because of the worth and work of Jesus. So would you open our eyes. To see the glories of Christ. Open our hearts. To taste them. To be expanded by them. To be warmed by them. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Alright, today we're going to continue where we left off two weeks ago. We are looking at how do you continue to trust God in severe situations. 
How do you continue? We know that we are to. Everyone knows if you read the scriptures, no matter where you land from Adam on down to the end of Revelation, that we're all called upon to trust the Lord. We're all called upon to obey the Lord. But it's not as easy as we think, is it? How do we continue to trust him in severe situations? Well, our first answer we looked at about two weeks ago. We looked at face Jerusalem. The first answer in this text was face Jerusalem. Daniel got up. He opened up the door or the windows that were set towards Jerusalem and he faced Jerusalem. He faced the presence of God for him. So why did he face the presence of God? He did so because Daniel knew that just because Israel had fallen, God hadn't fallen. Jerusalem might fall, but God hasn't fallen. And he can trust God. He can face Jerusalem, face the presence of God, because God has done something shockingly, stunningly powerful. He has not just bound himself to a nation. He's bound himself to individuals, and he's bound himself to sinful individuals in such a way that the bond or the The binding, the cords can't be broken. So even though Babylon can fall and Persia can come in, and even though Jerusalem can fall, even though severe situations can come, even though he can be thrown into a lion's den, he knows that God has still bound himself to him, that the cords can't be broken. God will always be gracious to him no matter what the situation and so we saw that a couple of weeks ago, but there's a lot, there's three more, three more windows, if you will, into how God is for us in such a way that if you really get that he's for you, faith begins to flame within. Your heart begins to expand with warmth towards the Lord because he starts pushing himself into your life and expanding your mind and your heart with his goodness and his greatness. And that is how we continue in faith. I mean, ultimately, we know. Ultimately, we know it's not our faith that brings God down. It's not our faith that reaches into the magic hat and pulls God out. We know that faith exists because someone else already exists. In other words, God is always first. God's presence is always previous. Because he's first and because he's previous, there is faith. And so when we get to a passage like this and we wrestle through, well, how do we grow in faith? The first thing we're going to see are three powerful truths about who God is for you in this passage. And if we get how he's for us in this passage, it pushes in and inflames faith within. Because faith is an effect, it's not a cause. Now, I know many of us today and in many circles today, we talk about faith as if it is a cause, as if it's some powerful entity that brings about otherworldly realities. If you just have enough of it or if you have just a small degree of it, amazing things can happen. And we talk about faith in such a way that we we tend to give it this mythological power, the superstitious power. And if you and I can find the lever or find the light switch within and just turn it or find it or unleash it. We unleash otherworldly realities in our life. If we are believing that, if we're on a track like that, I want you to get off the track. You'll run your soul into the ground. You have faith because God is always first. 
And because he's there, there is faith. There is help. So let's look at the first one. What's the first? How do you continue? Well, the first thing we need to do to continue trusting God in the severe situations, we need to refuse to trust our feelings. We need to refuse to trust the situation. And we need to refuse to even trust our own faith. Now, why is that? Why is that the first thing we need to do? Because that's the first thing we do do in severe situations. The first thing we do is we check out our feelings and we're thinking, I feel like God has left me. Not only that, it's even worse. I feel like he's punishing me. Right. I don't feel like I'm going to make it. I can't make it. I feel like everybody's left me. I feel like a failure. I feel like I can't get up in the morning. Or we we end up trusting and hoping in our own situations. Our situation gets us. We say things like, this situation is too great for me. It's too big. It's too powerful. It's too gut-busting. This situation is so pointless and so meaningless. It's a painful waste. And we trust and hope in the situation. Or even our faith gets us. We start trusting in our faith. We start thinking things like, ah, where's my faith? My faith is faltering. My faith is weakening. I, I have no faith. Where do you get faith? Friend, where do you get faith? Well, if you read this book and you go to this seminar, you'll get faith. Friend, where do I find faith? How do I believe like you believe? We start trusting and hoping in our own faith. And again, if we if we fix our eyes in a severe situation on our feelings or on a situation or even on our faith, we run our soul into the ground. It's a crash landing. Boom. Into the ground. So what David does is he actually trusts God. Now, there's an incredible phrase in verse 10. Find verse 10. Incredible phrase. He got down on his knees three times a day, prayed and gave thanks. Here's the phrase. Before his God. I mean, did you catch the picture of that? This is an incredible picture. Daniel is on his knees. He's praying and he's given thanks. And while he's praying and while he's given thanks, Jerusalem lands in Babylon. While he's praying and while he's giving thanks, Jerusalem descends from above and lands on the upper room of his house. And it lands in such a way that God is actually standing there with him. God is actually with him. The literal translation of being before God is that God is actually in front of him. Daniel's in front of God. I mean, the picture is God is so close that he is literally has Daniel right before him. He's watching Daniel on his knees. He's watching Daniel praying. He sees Daniel. He knows Daniel. He can see the breath coming out of his mouth. He sees and hears every concern that's going on in his heart. And he's standing there and he's saying, I hear you. I see you, Daniel. I'm with you, Daniel. I am your salvation. I am your sanctuary. I am your rock. I am your rescue to the bitter end. 
And so what we see is Daniel's not just facing Jerusalem because he's looking to God's presence. God's presence is actually standing right there with him. And because he does, his heart expands. Because God is present, his faith begins to flame. Because God is there, he's, he's invaded this area. His presence is filling this area. And Daniel now begins to see that he's standing literally before God. And that God sees him and hears him. His faith in his heart begins to get warmed. And his faith in his heart begins to stand. I was up in Dallas this past week for a good part of the week for some meetings that, for some church planners and for some campus ministers. Um, while I was up there, there was a, a fellow pastor who was giving a devotional on Tuesday morning. And he talked about when he was a freshman, he and his friend were going to try out for the varsity cross-country team. And so in order to make the, the team, you've got to go through a series of tests. And you've got to go through this one gutsy run that was a trial of whether you passed it or failed it, determine whether you made the team or not. Now, here's the catch. You run with the varsity team. Most of them seniors. These are freshmen. And what you do is you run in this long line. And you run grueling mile after grueling mile at the pace that the seniors set. Now, the seniors are trying to set the pace so high so that hardly any make it. And then it gets even worse. When you're at the back of the line, you sprint to the front of the line. When you get to the front of the line, the next guy in the back of the line sprints to the front of the line. So this pace just quickens and it's intense and it's mile after grueling mile after grueling mile. After several miles of this, his friend starts crying, gasping between breaths. I can't make it. I can't do this any longer. I can't do it. And this pastor said, he was such a good friend of mine, and I knew how much this meant to him. I started getting choked up. So here we are running. His tears are flying in my face because he's right in front of me. I'm getting choked up. My tears are flying and hitting the guy behind me. And then in the midst of it all, the older brother of the friend who's all everything, has every record of cross-country in the high school, breaks out of his line, runs by side his brother, and says, Bobby, you can cry, but you can't quit. We're going to run this together. Daniel... You can cry, but you can't quit. We're going to run this together. I'm here. I'm standing before you. And I'm not moving. Brothers and sisters, if we get a picture of the reality that our faith doesn't bring God's presence but our faith is the result of his presence already here. Do you know what that means? That means the barrier to you and me is not that God isn't here. The barrier for you and me is we don't see that he is. And according to the scripture and according to this passage, God has you and God has me. God has all his people before him. And he sits there and he sees you. 
And he hears you. So much so that he does reach out and wipe away your tears. So much so that he can see the breath come out on a cold day. So much so that he is there. And he gently opens your eyes to see him. And when he does, faith. You trust him. So what we need to do when we're in a severe situation, your feelings are going to scream, he's not here. Your feelings are going to scream, you're lost. Your feelings are going to scream, it's hopeless. Your feelings are going to scream, you're a loser. Your feelings are going to scream, you're a failure. Your feelings are going to scream, nobody likes you. You're a rejection. Feelings are going to do all of that all the time. The situation is going to say, look, this situation screams God's absence. It's too big for you. You're never going to make it. And your own faith is going to be faltering and stumbling. And you're going to be saying, I can't do this. Where is my faith? How do I get more faith? And the first call in this passage to continue to trust God in the midst of a severe situation is to refuse to trust those and to trust God that he is there. Okay. All right. Let's look at the next one. The next one is this. Trust God that he's at work in your situation. All right. Refuse to trust your feelings. Refuse to trust the situation. Refuse to trust even your faith. And now trust that he's at work in this severe situation. Now, we've hit this several times. You know, we've been going through Daniel and over and over again. One of the themes of Daniel has been what? God always wins in spite of present appearances, in spite of what it looks like. God always wins. So we know there's this dominating idea that weaves organically through every page in Daniel. And that is God is king. God is sovereign. He always wins. And because he is, he's always at work. So I'm not going to spend too much time here, but there's a sliver of light here that's just breathtaking in this passage. And I want you to look at it. At first glance, you know, when we read this passage, there's no mention of God. There's no mention of God until verse 26. So you have 25 verses that mention nothing about God. There's no mention that he's at work. There's nothing in terms of what's going on that God's doing, right? We see action. So at first glance, we see this passage is basically saying, look out. It's a runaway train. God left the engine. He went on a coffee break and things are screaming out of control. But then on second glance, we see that he never left the control room. We go to 25 and 26. Look at 25. King Darius wrote to all the peoples and nations, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in my royal dominion, the people are to tremble and fear before God, for he is the living God. He's enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and he works wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. Now, I want you to get that phrase in verse 26. He is the living God. I want you to catch the present tense. He is the living God. Present tense. He is the living God. This passage is doing more than just saying God exists. What this passage is actually communicating, because it's in present tense, and the, the affirmation of living, he is the living God, is not just that he exists, but that he's always at work in the world. God is always at work in the world. The present tense is emphasizing it. He is the living God. 
And just in case we miss that he's always at work in the world, the next phrases that follow it tell us how he's at work. If you look at verse, well, still look at verse 26. He is the living God. And here you get an unpacking of living. It means that he's enduring forever. And when you look at enduring forever, it means that his active work never stops. So God's always at work in the world. He's the living God and it endures forever. It never stops. And then you get down to his kingdom and we get the picture of his kingdom. You say, "Okay, he's the living God and he's always at work and his work never stops because he is the one who reigns and he is the one who rules over all things. His kingdom is over all. And then you drop down, you see his kingdom will never be destroyed. So God's active work not only never stops, it cannot be stopped. No one can destroy God's active work. No one can destroy God's kingdom. Not Nebuchadnezzar, not Darius, not a bunch of lions. It keeps going and it says his dominion shall be to the end. And God, as you can just see, he's just packing it. Boom, you take a turn here. Boom, he hits you over here. Boom, do you get the point? I'm living and active. I'm at work in this severe situation. I'm at work in this severe situation so much so that I'm in it to the bitter end. To the bitter end. I'm not quitting on you in the severe situation. Through feast, through famine, through pleasure, through pain, through chaos, through comfort through salvation, through judgment. I'm in it to the bitter end. And just in case we miss it, he gets into verse 27 and he gives you three more present tense verbs. What are they? He delivers, he rescues, he works signs presently. Okay. Now, Stonewall Jackson was mistakenly shot by one of his own soldiers in May of 1863 during the Civil War. He was shot, hit him in the arm. He had actually complications from the wound that eventually led to his death. Uh, He lost his arm first, and when he did, he had just amputated, so he just had a stump left. The reverend, his reverend chaplain, was a guy named Lacey. And Lacey came in, and when he saw him, he was in such distress. He said, oh, General, what a calamity. And Stonewall looked at his chaplain and looked at his pastor, and he thanked him for caring for him and he thanked him for all the years of being there with him and bringing the word of God to him and his soldiers and then he went on and this is what he said he said you see me severely wounded but not depressed not unhappy I believe that it's been done according to God's holy will and I will acquiesce entirely to it you may think it's strange but you never saw me more perfectly contented than I am today For I am sure that my heavenly father designs this affliction for my good. I am perfectly satisfied that either in this life or in the one is to come, I will discover that which is now regarded as a calamity. And someday be a blessing. And if it appears a great calamity, as surely it will be a great convenience of me to be deprived of my arm. It will result in a great blessing. I can wait until God in his own time shall make known to me the object he has for me in my suffering. Several days later, he took a turn for the worse 
and he was dying. He called his, well, his wife and his friends were already there, and he requested that they sing Psalm 51. And then he fell into a sleep. And while he was sleeping in the midst of a restless sleep, his last words were spoken clearly to all who were in the room. And this is what he said just before he died. Let us pass over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. Brothers and sisters, when we're in a severe situation, trust that God is at work in it for your good. And you will be discovered to you in God's perfect timing, either in this world or on the other side of the river, his design for it for you. So sometimes he's going to let you know. Other times, he says, on the other side, you'll see. On the other side. Now, the last thing that this passage is calling us to here is not just to refuse to trust your feelings and refuse to trust the situation and refuse to trust even your own faith but also to trust that God is always at work in a severe situation for your good. But also this passage, strangely, is calling each and every one of us to trust the only true, faithful Israelite. Isn't that amazing? There's a faithful Israelite in this passage And he's all our hopes. He's all our comfort. He's all our strength. He's everything. And he's in this passage. Daniel points way beyond himself. You've got to get this. I mean, we're reading the scriptures and you come to some characters in the Bible and you sit there and you say, Good night! Who's like this? I mean, come on. Let's start. Look at the four because statements. Verse three. This is what was said of Daniel because an excellent spirit was in him. Okay, I can live with that one. That one's not too bad. Go to verse four because he was faithful and no error, no fault ever was found in him. Well, I can't live with that one. Verse 22, because I was found blameless before him. He's come out now. And Daniel's announcing To Darius, he says, look, I was found blameless before the holy God. And also before you, O king. Verse 23, because he had trusted in his God. We've got to see that Daniel is pointing way beyond himself. There's a greater message in this passage than looking around and saying, ah, look how faithful Daniel is. And then the call being, be like Daniel. There's something much more bigger, much more beautiful, much more powerful going on in here. And if we do see it, it's actually the power of God to open our eyes and move our hearts. What is it? What is going on here? The book of Daniel very intentionally introduces Israel and it very intentionally introduces you and me to someone. Someone that hasn't been introduced in the Bible yet. Do you know what that is? The Son of Man. 
Daniel. Now remember where Daniel is. Remember where Daniel is in history. Remember, starting with the creation, you have a pattern of the kingdom established. The pattern falls and you wonder, is is it all over? And God says, no, it's not over. I'm not done. There's someone coming and he's better than the first Adam and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. So all of a sudden we're in this new era of grace. No one can believe it. Daniel, I mean, Adam can't believe it. He says he can't, he can't get over that they're still living. He said, Eve, you're the mother of living. Whoo! We're still around. So we go through redemptive history and all of a sudden we get to Abraham and we see the pattern of the kingdom being reestablished in Israel's history. Right? But then we get to David, and right after David, the unfaithfulness of Israel is so great that the kingdoms divide. And their unfaithfulness and their apostasy continues to magnify that there's eventually captivities and exiles. And now we're in this time between Israel actually falling to pieces and these prophets come in and they're left with the pieces and they're trying to tell Israel, here's how you interpret them. In walks Daniel. Jerusalem's gone. Israel's gone. And he says, to understand the peace of Israel, you've got to understand the Son of Man. He's a superman, this Son of Man. In the Son of Man, heaven and earth collide. He's so incredible that he's better and more faithful than Adam could have ever dreamed of. And not only that, he's better and more faithful than any Israelite. In fact, he's the only faithful, true Israelite. And God puts his kingdom on his shoulders. And he carries it triumphantly. Now, just so you know that I'm not making this stuff up, look at verse 4. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find ground for a complaint against Daniel. Right? They're looking for a complaint against him with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint. They could find no fault. Why? Because he was faithful. There was no error or fault was found in him. The Old Testament scholars are very quick to point out something that's very fascinating here. They said, you know what? It's really kind of weird, but Daniel's being identified as a sacrificial offering. Without blemish, without fault, without error. Leviticus 22, Deuteronomy 17, all offerings before God must must be perfect. No fault. No error. And then you get this weird little note in verse 23. It's when he comes out of the lion's den. What did they have to say about him? No harm came to him. It's almost like he's being identified as a Passover lamb. Remember what happened with the Passover lamb? No bone could be broken. No harm could be found in them. You know what's interesting in John? Why did John make such a big deal that Jesus had no bones that were broken? Because Jesus was the Passover lamb. Now we get down, still not convinced. Go to verse 17. 
Look at verse 17. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing could be changed concerning Daniel. It's as if Daniel is sealed in a tomb. In fact, Old Testament scholars point out that Matthew's account of Jesus' last days strikingly resembled Daniel's. Old Testament scholars say this. They were both framed by jealous leaders of the day. Both were arrested while at prayer in a private location. Both had the, both had the political authority working for their release, but ultimately failing. Darius Pilate. Both, in the end, would be turned over to be executed. Both were sealed in a tomb with a large rock, and the official seal of the political authority of the day was put on the tomb. And both would return from the den of death. One without a scratch, the other after he was torn to pieces by the wrath and curse of God. Do you see what's happening here? You get it in Daniel 2 if you miss it. You get it in Daniel 7 if you miss it. All the scriptures ultimately point to the, the fulfiller and complete completion of the Word of God. Daniel points way beyond himself to Jesus. And so what we get here... In Daniel's day, here's the last one. In Daniel's day, there was a legal practice, and this legal practice was called innocence by ordeal. You know what that meant? What they would do is that in order to, they would have guilty folks, and in order to determine whether they're innocent or not, they would put them in a precarious ordeal. They put them in a situation in which only a deity could intervene, and if a deity intervened, they're innocent. If the deity didn't intervene, they're guilty. What were the trials? Well, there were trials like water. Fire, poison, lion's dens. Look at verse 19. Then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. And as he came near the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lions? In other words... Are you innocent? Did the deity save you and vindicate you? Daniel's response. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angels, shut the mouths of the lions so they did not harm me because why? I'm innocent. God has found me innocent. God has found me righteous. God has made me victorious. Now, if we fast forward a couple hundred years, we go into heaven now. We have a peak in heaven and we have another scene in which there's the throne. And at the throne, there's a hand. And in the hand on the throne is a scroll. And in the scroll, there are seven seals on the top side and on the back side. And in the scroll, this voice calls out and an angel calls out and says, who can open it? And all of heaven is silent. And they look for someone who's worthy to open it. And they go and it says the angel looked on earth, under the earth, and in all of heaven. 
And no one was found worthy to open the seal. And John said he saw this, and when he heard that, he began to weep. And the angel said, don't weep. Behold. And he turned, and he looked, and he saw a lamb. And this is what the angel said. This lamb is a descendant of David. This lamb is from the tribe of Judah. This lamb is the only faithful Israelite. And he breaks open its seals. And he opens the book. And then you have the rest of the book of Revelation. And so what we get in heaven is that we have the king, the king of all kings, And he looks at this faithful Israelite and he says, not only innocent and not only righteous, not only are you blameless before me, but you are victorious. You bring the kingdom. And now it comes on your shoulders. And so what we do, what do we do? Well, we trust him because this one willingly walked into the devouring den of death on behalf of guilty people. In other words, look what happens to the accusers of Daniel. This is what we deserve. We deserve to go into the devouring den of death and there will be no deity that vindicates us. There will be no deity that rescues us to show that we're innocent because we're not innocent. We're guilty. So what should happen to guilty people, we find out in verse 24. And the king commanded those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, they're brought and they're cast into the den of lions. Now notice, they don't even, they don't even get down two inches and the lions are leaping up to devour them. And not only them, their wives and their children. What a horrible picture. What a gruesome picture. But what a deserving picture of all of us. We deserve the den. And we won't have anybody say, he's innocent, but he's innocent. She's, she's blameless. But what we do have is we look and we see that there's a faithful Israelite of the tribe of Judah. And he says, move out of the way. And he walks into the den of devouring death and is devoured in the place of the guilty. And now... And now there's the Holy One on his throne and he takes his scepter and he sends it through heaven and earth. Boom! And everything shakes and he says, innocent. She's righteous. Because of the work of my faithful son. Not guilty. Those of us that know right now we're we're facing that den, that devouring den of death alone. The call to you, the call to me is to trust in the faithful one who took the place of guilty ones like us. So you're to trust in the faithful Israelite who took your place. And if you trust in the faithful Israelite who took your place, God says innocent. God says righteous over you. God says 
you're victorious because of my faithful son. And some of you, ah, my throat's going now. Some of you who are struggling right now in a severe situation and it's clouded by dark thoughts of despairing feelings and it's clouded by deeper thoughts of a situation that's out of control and it's clouded by even deeper thoughts that you can't find the pulse of your faith and you're struggling like crazy. You know what this passage calls you to? To see His great love for you. How? If you were Paul, you'd put it propositionally, but we're not Paul, we're in Daniel, so we'll put it pictorially. How do you see His love for you? Because He willingly walked into the den of death for you. Took your place. Because He loves you. That's why. If He loved you and willingly did that for you, you can count on His love in a minor, severe situation compared to the den of devouring death. Right? You need to trust Him too because His return from the den of death sanctified your severe situation. In other words, all our severe situations are no longer pointless. We think of them as pointless. We think of them as wasted misery. We think of them as a painful waste. We think of them as just crushing us and devouring us and there's no sense to them. There's no point to them. And when we look at the one who returned from the den of death, though, His return, His cross and His resurrection took all severe situations and He sanctified them. What that means is they're no longer pointless. They're now purposeful in his hands. He takes your severe situation. He takes it and he sanctifies it. And he says to the severe situation that's nailing you, he says, submit to me. You will bow severe situation before me. I'm king. You will now serve my purposes. So, you mean it for evil to him or her? I will mean it for good. You will think to pound her to a pitiful pulp of endless mercy? And I say, no, you won't. I say, serve me. You will now push in my presence. You will now push in my grace. You will now push in strengthening power, you will now push in my eternal purposes, even though in and of yourself you're wicked and you're evil. But you will submit to me. So we trust the faithful Israelite, not just because he walked into the devouring death and took our place so that we could hear the ring of innocence and we can hear the ring of righteousness and we can hear the ring of your victorious but we trust Him because His return from that den means that all our severe situations are now sanctified in His hands. They're now to do good to us. And they're now to bring glory to Him. So how do you endure, people of God? How do you continue to trust Him? Face Jerusalem? Certainly. 
Don't trust your faith. Don't trust the situation. Don't trust your feelings. Certainly. Trust that God's at work. Certainly. But more than anything, trust the only truly faithful Israelite. Not only went in, he came out. And that's how you persevere. Amen.